You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this is episode two of season six. Yes, we have a great interview lined up for today. But before we get to that, we just wanted to chat a little bit about some of our contemporary preoccupations. I'll kick things off with this. Go for it. I want to talk about sparkling water. Okay. (laughs) We've talked about LaCroix sparkling water before. We have downgraded our sparkling water preferences to the uh, Walmart, right? Um, no, it's actually the other at the store. other grocery store. Yeah. So it's Polar, like Polar water brand, Polar 100% natural seltzer. And it is cheaper than LaCroix, which is why we buy it. Still tasty, not as tasty, I think. I don't know. I don't. I think there's fewer flavor options, but I don't think that it's you don't taste really. The yeah, I think the quality is still there. Honestly, it's probably because your palate isn't as refined as mine. But... Probably. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I think is cool is just that. It kind of happened that we figured out that I prefer lime things and you prefer lemon things. Yes. And I don't even think I consciously realized this before we started buying lots of sparkling water. Yeah. (laughs) But a favorite has definitely emerged for me and for you. Yeah. I will pretty much be the only one to drink the lemon seltzers. And I will drink the lime if that's all that I have to choose from. But you would prefer the the lime seltzer. If the alternative is... Going without water in the Sahara Desert, you will have the lime sparkling water. <laughs> no, if my option is just drinking regular water, then I'll have the right. lemon seltzer water. <laughs> yeah, that's about where I am on the lemon seltzer. You, you meant lime seltzer water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because you like the lemon. Right, I love I the like lemon. The, I love the lime. Yeah, and I love the lemon. I appreciate the lemon. <laughs> <laughs> so polar seltzer water, one contemporary preoccupation. I would say another one is... The novel that we both recently read. Well, you read the trilogy, I guess. Yeah, I, I love novel. that our contemporary preoccupations are shared in this episode. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, we, okay, so I forget how I first heard about this, but I found out that J.K. Rowling had written a books for adults and she wrote under a pseudonym, Robert Galbraith. And I'm probably, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but that's, that's how, how I've been yeah. pronouncing it. And she wrote under that pseudonym, she wrote a three volume crime fiction series um, featuring the the detective Cormoran Strike. So they're called the Cormoran Strike novels. And I picked up the first one, Cuckoo's Calling, uh, in late April or early May. And then I got you on to it yeah. after I was like in was very finishing the second one. I and think. I've only read the first one so far. I yeah. want to read the second. So you read The Cuckoo's Calling and then I also read The Silkworm and I read The Career of Evil, which is the last one. And they were so, so good. They were. I have not read any of the Harry Potter books. Terrible, I know. Um, so I've actually never read anything by J.K. Rowling, but I was really impressed by her writing style. Yeah, she's just such a great writer. Such a great storyteller. I Her characters are... They yeah, just really I think that was what jumped you. out at me is how vivid the characters were all portrayed. Yeah. Really impressive. Yeah, and so <laughs> I'm on such a J.K. Rowling kick now that I ordered another one of her adult books, which is called – or books for adults, which is called The Casual Vacancy. And I think it's a mystery also. 
So I'm not quite sure, but I just okay. got it from the library. It looks massive. That was one of those that I saw on our yeah. on our kitchen counter. So Yeah. I've got quite a stack. Nice. So yeah, if you are looking for a good summer read and don't mind some a little bit of gore, a little bit of suspense, but great characters and great writing, Cormoran Strike novels. And apparently the BBC is coming out with its own miniseries, a la That's Sherlock right. Holmes. Yeah, I haven't actually Sometime seen... Sometime in the future. I haven't looked into haven't it. I haven't seen I've it just officially. Heard this. just heard it. Yeah. And there, I guess they're still in the works, so it's a long time in the future, Bar but twenty nineteen, really, really need to like make that. this into a movie because, yeah, or a be. miniseries because it, it's just so great. Or it's one of, I don't know. I mean, I, or would I'm they excited, ruin it? Yeah, I'm excited yeah, to see I it, know. but I don't want it to ruin my, ruin my image of vivid it. Vivid images, yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Should we do the interview? Yes. All right. Next up, Brian Brown. All right. Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. Joining us now is Brian Brown. Brian is the principal of Narrator, which is a storytelling consulting firm. And he's also the executive director of the Anselm Society in Colorado Springs and the senior editor of Humane Pursuits. We're going to talk especially about those latter two today. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks for giving me a a three-part introduction to (laughs) set me up for causing three times as much trouble. (laughs) You're a busy man. And we didn't even mention that you are a husband and father. So That's true. The most important part of your bio. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and your kid, Edmund, is a pretty adorable little guy, if I do say so. Thank you. Um, Let's talk about these themes of imagination and storytelling. So I, I... I, I, th- I don't think we have time, but I want to talk to you about Narrator, which is your storytelling consultancy, or I guess we could call it your day job. Uh, but really what's what's most interesting of these three is the latter two I mentioned. So you work at the Anselm Society and Humane Pursuits. But really all of these three touch on imagination and storytelling. It seems to me that your life's work is really at the intersection of those two. So talk to me a little bit more about these things, imagination and storytelling, Maybe we can call them virtues, but why is it important to cultivate these virtues? Well, I think probably a great place to start is is, is what is imagination? Because I think most of us, when we hear that word, we think uh, maybe the, the the Disney fairy tales that we grew up with. We think of uh, childish things. So it's funny you um, say that. I was as soon as you said, "What is imagination?" I was thinking, "Well, it's you know my daughter pretending to be a princess in a castle." <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, and 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 yet, uh, I, I love the way that that G.K. Chesterton uh, put it. He said the function of imagination is not to make uh, strange things settled uh, so much as to make settled things strange. Not so much to make wonders facts as to make facts wonders. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis put it slightly differently, which is that he said if, if if reason is the organ of truth, imagination is the organ of meaning. Um, so a properly developed imagination and tools like stories that, that help you develop it, I think are absolutely crucial to making sense of the world around us because it's not just a matter of um, doing exactly what we're told by our parents as we grow up. It's not just a matter of cold, hard logic. We have to make decisions about what we ought to like or dislike, uh, what things are worth building our lives around. And those are questions of imagination because they're, they're questions of 
uh, assigning meaning to things. And we associate imagination with fairy tales because that's where it starts. Uh, as, as children, you, you start with kind of black and white versions of tough questions uh, to help you start to wrap your mind around uh, what, is, what does a good guy look like? What does a bad guy look like? Um, but that's just the child's version of it. The adult version keeps going from there. So I guess what do you mean by that? Because I'm I'm tracking all of this. I like that quote, especially that's resonating with me, that uh, imagination is the organ of meaning. But what I guess how do you translate that? What does it look like to go from a Harry Potter world as a child to using your imagination as an adult? I think different people would have different answers to that question. And everyone's answers, it tends to be very specific to themselves. So I've got friends that are very, uh, very big readers, very bookish. Um, so for them, uh, continuing to develop it involves continuing to read a lot, especially a lot of fiction. Um, and you, I mean, storytelling was one of the things you asked about. Um, stories are incredibly important pieces of it, but they're not, they're not the only things. Um, we live in uh, a really weird moment in time in that how a human would develop uh, at any place on the planet, at any point in time, uh, you would have this, this rich reality of relationships, community, shared stories, history, habits, rituals, and so on, uh, that, would, that would kind of provide a foundation for your individual story that would give you a place to start. Um, and that was the way that your imagination was developed. You probably had a, a village that you came from and you, um, you made sense of the world partly through, uh, this, this grounding that you had and, well, this is who we are. This is who I am. Um, these are the, the songs that I grew up singing. These are the stories I grew up listening to. These are the, the values that I grew up with. These are the uh, rituals or habits that I did on a regular basis that shaped who I was. Um, and we live in a weird moment in time in that uh, we have very little of that now. So talking about cultivating an imagination, someone in the Middle Ages, whatever the flaws of that time period, or someone at any other point in time, they would not have had a conversation about how to cultivate an imagination for the simple reason that it was just built into their culture. Uh, we have to be more intentional about it now, partly because, frankly, we have so many choices. We are educated by a mixture of different people. We grow up, move to a lot of different places. Um, and as we grow up, get to have a lot of say in uh, who we're going to be from there. And so imagination as, a, as an intentional thing to cultivate all of a sudden becomes a project in the same way that uh, staying in shape is, is, is a, a project, an activity for us in the way that it wouldn't have been for a 17th century farmer. So staying staying on this imagination theme a little bit, it seems like the major thrust of this Anselm society that we would like to talk about is cultivating imagination. I think, in fact, the mission of this, the stated aim is to uh, cultivate a renaissance of the imagination. What, what, what does that mean? How do you achieve this through the Anselm society? Maybe let's back up to the very basics of this. Why the Anselm Society? Who is this Anselm character? Sure. So St. Anselm was an 11th century Archbishop of Canterbury uh, who was part of the scholastic movement, uh, the most famous member from was, of which was Thomas Aquinas. Um, and uh, interestingly, for 
a movement that was that had a lot of emphasis on on reason on reasonableness he actually defined theology as faith seeking understanding um or put another way uh, as an act of the imagination because he saw the life of faith as one where you are constantly stretching um to wrap your mind around something that is bigger than you that is beyond you uh, and yet something that you're called to um saw it as, as, as an identity that you had to live into, and yet it was this identity that you could barely comprehend, even the notion of being a good person. Uh, have you ever seen one? Uh, oh, well, that's what you're called to be. So he saw uh, the life of faith and, and the life of, of being human to some, on some level as, as something that was inherently an act of imagination. You couldn't do it well by just bringing your reason to the table or by just bringing your emotion to the table. Uh, and that was a bit unusual for his time period, or at least his movement. And we, we liked the, the leadership that he showed in that time period and the, the message that he really sort of sent, sent down the ages from there because that idea of faith-seeking understanding has, has definitely stuck with the church to a large extent historically. So what is the Anselm Society that you started? So Anselm Society's mission is uh, a renaissance of the Christian imagination. We uh, we decided to start it um, several years ago at this point uh, because the church, as we see it, almost universally across denominations, uh, either in doctrine or if not in doctrine, in practice, has kind of kicked imagination out. We meet artist after artist, uh, writers, uh, novelists, poets, songwriters, painters, uh, feel burned by church for a variety of uh, in most cases, very reasonable reasons. Um, and from from our perspective, at, this is at precisely the time when uh, the Christian church needs a faith that can not only withstand um, an age that's not particularly friendly to religion, uh, but on, on, on some level look to be a force in that, uh, in that age, transform it, uh, be a positive element within it. Uh, the church in that in that context, pretty much utterly surrendered the imaginations of its members to the outside world. Um, an example that I would give, I was at a, a Good Friday service a few years ago, and it was, it was, there was high drama going on. The room was lit by candles, the altar was draped in black, people were kneeling in prayer, and this is a day in the Christian calendar where the church gathers literally to observe the historical occasion of the bloody murder of their God by themselves. And in, in this context, the candles, the black drapery, uh, there were a whole bunch of parents behind me uh, talking loudly about their kids' soccer practice earlier that day. Their imaginations were utterly impervious to the scene that they were being invited to take part in. Whatever their churches had done throughout their lives, tell their mind things, doctrine, uh, or to get them to feel vaguely enthusiastic uh, at various points in a service. Um, the simple fact is the amount of time they spent in church and what church was able to do uh, with them was just laughably impotent in the face of the swallowing up of their imagination by everything else in life, from actual actively harmful influences to just run-of-the-mill things. I mean, doing the laundry, screaming kids. Uh, every little thing that was constantly calling and calling them to say, you know what, what's going on right here, that matters more than my faith or 
getting to work on time matters more than that poor person that I just uh, ignored who was asking for a handout. So that's what motivated us, this picture in which precisely at the moment when uh, Christians needed an incredibly robust imagination in order to, uh, in in a way, and I don't mean this literally, but in in a way, uh, bring heaven to a very ugly world, most of the church was pretty content with the status quo and definitely not interested in artists that would uh, challenge that status quo. Where do you see the Anselm Society going uh, in the future? Where do you, what's your vision for it over the long term? In the long run, I think the, the key piece that that we the key role that we've fallen into uh, gradually is the reintegration of the arts and the church. Um, so, one thing that we've done on a small scale that we would really like to be able to do on much on a much larger scale is get artists and pastors in a room together. It floors me uh, how few artists have had uh, a decent conversation with a priest about their craft and how few pastors and priests have had that conversation with artists. As a result, uh, you go to your typical American church in almost any denomination and you have artists within it. Maybe there are hundreds of them. Maybe there are three uh, who the pastor probably doesn't even know that they're incredibly gifted painters or storytellers. Or uh, if they do know, they don't really know how to minister to them in that way. And so we think that the biggest role that we can play in that context uh, is to re-engage those two groups and all the laymen in between them in in a larger conversation about uh, shaping souls with more than just, uh, just teaching. You mentioned earlier that storytelling is an important means to bolstering one's imagination. And we also mentioned that you are senior editor of Humane Pursuits. How does Humane Pursuits support that um, that goal of storytelling and imagination? It's, it's an interesting piece of the puzzle. It's the tagline of Humane Pursuits, um, the mission statement, I guess, if you will, uh, is, is modern boxes rounded lives. Uh, Humane Pursuits is very concerned with the everyday context for everyday people. There are lots of people that want to fix various things in the country through politics, who want to fix it through the built environment and improving that, kind of these big big macro things. But for most of us, that stuff's not happening fast enough, Um, or it's not happening in the way we would like, or frankly, we don't even have time to think about what the way we would like would even look like. Um, so Humane Pursuits is deals with a very, very practical level of how can I live in a more human, more humane way in a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis where no one is magically taking away my responsibilities, no one is magically putting me in a job that I like better, uh, no one is magically making me the owner of a super hipster craft coffee shop. Um, so Humane Pursuits focuses very much on that normal person, that normal person's life, and the things that that normal person could actually uh, use as ideas or inspiration uh, to make small, manageable, incremental changes so that at some point in the future, 
they could actually look back and go, my life is far more meaningful, far deeper, far richer. I've managed to to carve out more of these pieces of being human in the face of all the gridlock and isolation and anonymity and all of the other things that drive us crazy in this day and age. Do you think that um, digital media is one of those things that is hampering our imagination and our humane living? Or do you think that it there's ways that it can help those those goals that you talked about? Because on um, one level, digital media like Instagram, um, Facebook Live, they they help us tell sto- more stories or help kind of people who wouldn't otherwise tell stories tell stories. But do you see that as um, – a good in and of itself or or is it hurting our storytelling that's a great question i i think i think our stories are isolated i think that's probably how i would frame it i talked earlier about how we live in this very unprecedented time in the sense that we have the opportunity at least in theory to carve out our own stories from scratch, whether you, you hear those words in a sort of a capitalist libertarian sort of sense where I can I can make anything of myself um, if I work hard enough, or whether you see that in a more uh, progressive sense, where what that sentence would mean is, uh, you know, I identify as X, Y, or Z, and therefore it is so. Um, we can be anybody, we can do anything. And uh, most people in their 30s and younger have been told that their entire lives. And we are on some level often encouraged to abandon some of the things I mentioned earlier, Um, the communities we grew up in, uh, traditions, old fashioned things. Um, If we had those things at all, we're encouraged to abandon them, strike out on our own, find our uh, our passion and so on. Uh, and we're going to find those things we're told we're going to find those things within. And the result in practice for most of us, I think, is that we want desperately for our stories to be known, ideally by people who would love us uh, for them, through them, in spite of them. Uh, but failing, failing that, uh, that those stories would be known by anybody. And often we don't really understand them themselves, that isolated piece of them that I can throw up on on Facebook on a given day is that piece is measured by likes and comments in terms of its significance. I can work up just enough courage to share a tiny bit of who I am in that social media context. And every notification telling me that someone liked it is intoxicating as a result because it's that tiny little digital fragment of of meaning, that tiny little digital fragment of validation that, uh, that that piece of who I am matters to somebody. So I think, and I've said before in conversations with uh, clients in my day job that uh, dig- digital media, social media, it's not, it's not inherently good or inherently bad, but it is a response. It's invention was a response to an inherently bad thing, which is a whole generation of people that were incredibly isolated and trying to find some way to cope with that problem. You mentioned meaning. Um, we recently read a book, The Power of Meaning, and hosted a book club episode on the on the show, and um, The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. And in that book, she names storytelling specifically as one of the pillars of meaning, and she names four different pillars, storytelling, belonging, purpose, and transcendence. What do you think of that thesis? I think that's 
I think that's one useful way of framing it. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but um, so my so this reaction may be restating an idea that she articulates in the book. But I mean, I think those four things that uh, that, that you mentioned are a web of interrelated things that feed each other and depend on each other. So, for example, um, you get a sense of purpose in part from transcendence and belonging. Um, that's probably why it's often so hard as you struggle to get up in the morning and force yourself to deal with, uh, I use the examples of gridlock or screaming kids or a job you hate uh, or the pressures of school. It's so hard a lot of the time to see any way out of that because you can't fix one thing in order to recapture a sense of meaning in your life. If you get up in the morning and you struggle with depression or maybe you don't struggle with clinical depression, but you're discouraged by major things in your life, you can't fix them just by making one tweak to your lifestyle um, or even to by, by addressing one of those four pillars because they are all uh, wrapped up in each other. And this is how I've ended up running uh, three different uh, three different projects all at the same time, because uh, as I've gone on uh, in my life, I've encountered over time different, as I see it, pieces of the puzzle um, that weren't being addressed or weren't being addressed adequately or weren't being addressed by enough people. Um, because, you, frankly, human beings need a lot more support than most of us have in dealing with these kinds of problems for the simple reason that they are all interrelated. I mean, in a perfect world, you would magically have strong community uh, and yet strong sense of self. You have a strong body and yet a strong soul. You would have stories and songs that inspired you every day and gave your life meaning and so on and so forth. You'd have all of these things at once, but you don't have all of these things at once. You probably hardly have any of these things. Um, and no one's going to drop uh, all of them in your lap overnight. So on the basic human level, as far as uh, those four pillars, I think the connection between them is important. And I think uh, thinking of it that way is important, partly from the perspective of cutting yourself some slack. But I also think that from the perspective of, of people who are connected to larger institutions, uh, there's work to be done and giving people more support in all of those areas at once. Well, I think that's well said. I appreciate the work that you're doing with with those three entities that we talked about. And as far as the institutional support, I think our listeners should check out your work at Narrator, which we didn't get to talk about. If you want to do that, that's narratoronline.com. Also, uh, the Anselm Society, you can read more about that at anselmsociety.org. And you can check out Humane Pursuits at humanepursuits.com. And I want to call your attention to some sample articles from Humane Pursuits. One of them that caught my eye is by one of your authors there, Brian Joseph, Cunning, Joseph Cunningham, and I think it's called uh, Netflix and the Good Life. And it, uh, it basically says G.K. Chesterton defended the penny novel, so we should defend Netflix watching. We shouldn't feel guilty about it. It's, it can be a part of the good life. And he has some suggestions for how to binge well, if I can use that <laughs> turn of phrase. There's also uh, by Brian Brown himself, how to make a real pumpkin spice latte. So if that's Ooh. your kind of thing, you can go to Humane Pursuits for that. Um, I've also noticed on here, Brian, a lot of culinary articles and your signature as senior editor seems to be uh, cocktail recommendations. So 
Let me ask you, what is your best cocktail recommendation for our listeners today? Well, first of all, I make cocktails because I'm not good enough at baking. You've got to start somewhere. <laughs> you too, that's uh, true. My, my, my wife and I have been watching the Great British Baking Show, and I'm just floored at the sheer amount of uh, not just individual knowledge, but historical knowledge that seems to go into doing it well. Cocktails, on the other hand, were, were easy for me to start with. Uh, start with a few bottles, make what you can make with those, and build from there. Um, the, the one that I'm hooked on right now is called a Black Manhattan. If, uh, many people have had a Manhattan, which is going to be two parts uh, rye whiskey, one part uh, or slightly less uh, sweet vermouth um, and aromatic or Angostura bitters. Black Manhattan is exactly the same, except instead of the sweet vermouth, um, it adds Amaro, which is a slightly bitter um, Italian uh, aperitif. It just makes the drink Sounds a little good. bit uh, darker. It's a very manly drink. Sounds very manly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. The Black Manhattan. Thanks. The final question I want to ask you on a slightly more serious note. We're talking about imagination and storytelling and all of these good aims that you're trying to achieve through your various organizations. What book recommendations might you have for our listeners who are interested in some of these same ideas? Well, that was that's an easy question because I get asked that one a lot. The only uh, difficult part, of course, is, is always narrowing it down. it down to three, <laughs> limiting it to three. Uh, but the, but uh, but the three that were the first ones that uh, came to mind, and the first ones that have tended to come to mind. Uh, the last year or so, at least. The uh, first one is by Anthony Esselin. It's called 10 Ways to Destroy the Imagination of Your Child. And it's uh, it's semi-satirical. Um, it's mostly satirical. Um, I but hope so. <laughs> in the process of, yes, in the, in the, in the process of, of talking about um, sort of as this fictional character who wants to destroy, we could say destroy childhood and by extension adulthood, um, he delves a lot into what makes childhood so special and the parts of it that you kind of realize I should have hung on to that as an adult, actually, that wasn't so much childish as childlike. Um, that's a beautiful book. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Cause it's, we actually have it on our bookshelf and I have it on my list of the next nonfiction book to read. So good. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I've, I read it three times and I don't typically read nonfiction books that many times. So it's wonderful. I don't know um, read fiction books that many times. <laughs> <laughs> More recently, um, James K.A. Smith came out with a book, I think last year, called You Are What You Love, um, which is actually just a, a, a shortened, popular version of a book he wrote a little further back called Desiring the Kingdom. Um, they're both on the same topic, but the first one's a little more user-friendly. And they're delving into a lot of these Christian imagination-type questions. Um, from from a church perspective. He has, he's asking the question, what does it mean to form Christians? What does it mean? And a lot of this, frankly, a lot of it is Christian, but a lot of it is even pretty universal. What does it mean to be uh, initiated into the meanings of a particular uh, culture or belief system? And he argues basically that you are what you love. You are not what you feel. You are not what you um, eat, do, you are not what you eat. <laughs> you, you are not even as, as most Protestants would say, what you believe, but you are what you love. And he explains what that means, where that comes from and, uh, and what its implications are for 
uh, for Christianity. And the third one that comes to mind, I just finished, and it's um, one I've been meaning to read for a while. It's by Matthew Crawford, the guy who wrote Shop Class as Soulcraft a few years back that yeah. everyone seemed to be reading in, in certain circles. And uh, and this new one's called The World Beyond Your Head, uh, Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction. And he uses the example of going through an airport, talking about the assault on your senses of all of the advertisements and announcements and lights and banners and signs and um, and just talks about how how much of our life is that way, um, how little time we have for silence, how little time we have to figure out who we are because, well, I've got another meeting in 15 minutes. And he digs ridiculously deep at a cerebral level that made my head hurt uh, into where that all came from and actually some practical questions about uh, what we could do about it. So if you're really interested in making your head hurt, but being happy you did at the end of it, that's a great read. Sounds good. Yeah, those, those are great recommendations. We'll put links to those in our show notes. Yeah. Um, so once again, to our listeners, uh, Brian's work can be found at narratoronline.com, anselmsociety.org, and humanepursuits.com as well. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today. It was fun to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap on another episode of Vernacular Podcast. Sorry about the audio quality in the second half of the conversation there. We we had to switch from Skype to a cell phone because Skype just decided not to work on us. Yep. But luckily, you could still hear Brian loud and clear, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. If you have questions or comments, please contact us. You can email us at Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And you can see us, reach us on Instagram and Twitter. The gram. The gram. The gram. What is Twitter? The <laughs> Twitter <laughs> at vernacular pod and Facebook, even though we're not really on Facebook that much, but you can see us there and facebook.com slash vernacular yes. podcast. And you can rate and review us on iTunes, which is what Kara from Queens, New York did. Kara, thank you so much for your you so much. recent review. And Kara adds, hello from Queens, New York City. We love New York City. Really want to go back sometime soon. Sally particularly wants to visit Brooklyn, but if we're going to go to Queens, what should we visit in Queens as well? Oh, yeah. Let us know. Yeah. So anyway, thank you, Kara. Appreciate hearing from you. Always love hearing from our listeners. So please leave us a rating or review if you have time. We also got an email or what do you call it? A direct message over Twitter. That's right. We did. From Peter. Yep. And Peter he... said he never misses a show and loves it. So Pete, thanks for the shout out there appreciate it yeah so thanks to all those new listeners that have just joined us feel free to go back to the archives of vernacular podcast and we hope you enjoy season six yeah i think that's it i think so for vernacular podcast i'm zach and i'm sally have a great week